Stanley, you not only have hockey cred, you've, you've written 90 hockey books, but now in my mind, you have street cred because when we booked you and, and we told you to be here this afternoon, you asked me for the location. You said, okay, my, my bicycle tires are pumped up. I'm ready to go for the 40 block bike trip through the streets of Manhattan. You are how old? I'm 81. Would it not be safer for you on the ice? <laughs> I actually have uh, done a lot of skating. I, I played hockey, but I have been riding my, I've been riding a bike on the city streets. I can tell you exactly when, since 1943. So uh, this is, uh, that and the subway are my basic means of transportation around town. Well, that and walking also. I love walking around. So let's fast forward to this week. Uh my my nine-year-old daughter and I stumbled upon game three because I don't make an appointment for this stuff. Game three of the Bruins versus the Blackhawks. It was overtime. And she was asking me one question after another, which I couldn't answer. That's when I decided I had to have you on the show. And at one point she said, this game is moving so fast. She said, if we blink our eyes, we could miss a score. And as she was saying that, she said, you know what? I'm going to keep my eyes open and not blink. And as she said that, the winning score for the Bruins. So we want to make this interview with you. We want you to give us the ability, whether our eyes are wide open or whether we're blinking, to see the game. So tell us, how should we watch the rest of this series? Well, the first uh, step always is to keep your eyes on the puck. The problem with doing that in the contemporary game is that it's never been faster. The, the players are wearing high-tech skates, and they're skating faster than they ever have, probably uh, up to 30 miles per hour. Uh, they have high-tech sticks, so they're able to deliver the shots uh, faster than ever, which is now, uh, I think, the current uh, leader in terms of hard shots is about 106 miles per hour. Uh, that's one of the Boston defensemen, Zadino Chara. So the uh, naked eye, uh, whether you're watching it on television or in person, will find it very difficult to actually keep track of the puck on a regular basis. Now, of course, when you lose track of the puck, then you have to focus on where the players are converging, whether it's in the front of the net or whether it's behind the net or, or at center ice. But the, uh, the puck is the thing. Uh, quick story. The uh, coach of the Chicago Blackhawks had a team that was not too good, and one day he wanted to explain the game to his players, so he had a hockey net brought into the dressing room, and Dick Irvin had a puck in his hand, he threw it in the net, and he said, boys, that's all hockey's about, throw it that, get that puck in the net. And that's really what it's about. So if you don't actually see the puck, you focus on the players who are in closest pursuit or if the puck is being fought along the boards, then you have to kind of look down at the skates. Now, I want to come back to this idea of skating at 30 miles an hour, back and forth, back and forth, combined with the idea of a puck going at 106 miles an hour. You think of a baseball fastball and how hard it is to keep your eye on that. And those barely break 100 sometimes on a fastball, right? And this is a much closer distance that you're shooting from. 
So how does how do they make it happen? How can you stop a puck from going that fast? Well, one of the things that's happened is that uh, probably as courageous as anything in sports is that there are defensemen who will hurl their body in front of these shots. And, of course, uh, there's been some severe damage uh, in that respect. A couple of guys have suffered uh, serious eye injuries. But uh, in terms of stopping the puck, the goaltenders today are far more athletic than they ever were. And the reason for that is they, the fear. Goaltending, the primary factor in goaltending in the past when there were no masks was fear. That's the way, that's what determined the way the goalie positioned himself and the way he stopped the puck. With the advent of the uh, protective mask, the one they use today is just about flawless. When, when so, did, I'm sorry, when did they not wear masks? Well, the first mask was in 1960. I was at the game. Jacques Plant was the Montreal goalie, and Andy Bathgate of the Rangers threw a backhander at him, deliberately, by the way. There's a story behind that. He wanted to get him in the face, and he did. And uh, Plant was carted off, and his coach uh, knew he had this mask. He had used it in practice. The coach thought it was uh, uh, really uh, not very manly. It was a very macho, macho uh, guy. Toe Blake was the coach, and he said, "You're not going to wear the mask." And to in those days, they didn't have backup goalies, so uh, he said, "Well, look, if you're not going to let me wear the mask, I'm not going to go back out there." So Blake had to uh, let him use the mask, and it was a pretty uh, flimsy thing compared to today's, but it was something that he felt more comfortable with, and. From that point on, gradually, it was not something that was accepted right away. They thought it was sort of an effeminate thing for a, a plant to wear the mask. But gradually, as other goalies began to get hurt, and some of them uh, had more than 150 stitches taken between the top of their head to their neck. So it uh, became uh, official after a while. It took a long time, though. Wow. You... uh you tell me that they're they are more athletic the players today, and I and I keep on hearing this in every sport. I was interviewing Nick Bolateri, uh, who's actually about your age and has been in the tennis game as long as as you've been in hockey. And I said, "What's the big difference between now and fifteen, twenty, thirty years ago?" He says, "The athleticism of the guys. It's really made a big difference, hasn't it?" And how did that, how did that happen? Well, in the old days. Players were getting something like five, seven thousand dollars a year, so they had to work in the summer. They had, most of, everybody had a summer job. Bill Jews, the Ranger defenseman, was a uh, engineer on a steam locomotive out of Winnipeg on the Canadian Pacific. These guys all had had jobs, and with the uh, you know, increases in salaries and uh, more sophistication, instead of drinking beer and uh, you know kidding around, uh, taking it easy during the summer. Now they all train. They continue training through the summer. They, uh, all these players are making big dough, so they hire personal trainers and they watch their, uh, their nutrition is, is a big thing. All of these uh, sophisticated ways of taking care of the body, which weren't known back then. Guys used to come to camp with, uh, you know, pot bellies and they would get in shape at training camp. Now these guys that come to camp, they're in shape already and it's just a matter of, honing it to sharpness. The problem is, as you noted, it's faster than ever. So when you have a collision of bodies going as fast as they are now, there's no trainer there to, to stop the collision. So you have 
very, very serious injuries and the advent of a word we never discussed 20 years ago or beyond, concussions. Concussion is a big thing in hockey because of these collisions at high speeds. And and that's not necessarily, and we've, we've heard about, even those of us who aren't in the hockey world, we've heard of this position that's taken on increasing importance called the enforcers, the guy who intimidates the others and who sometimes picks fights intentionally, right? And and yet, when I hear you talking, say that's 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 just one of the problems out there. That's just one of the dangers because two people going thirty miles an hour on opposing teams, they might not they might not even see each other, right? Oh, if, that's right. I mean, some of the uh, some of the most devastating checks are checks that are thrown uh, when the victim is basically unaware. He may have his eye. He may be getting a pass and watching for the pass. And while he's watching for the pass, as he gets the puck, he's lined up and he's wasted by a body check. And, you know, it's not all that clean. Uh, there are elbows. One of the guys who was a star on the Boston Bruins, Mark Savard, took a dirty elbow from a guy on uh, Pittsburgh, Matt Cook. Mark Savard's not going to be playing hockey for the rest of his life. He's been out two years, and he's done. Mm. And he's not the only one, by the way. There are other guys. A uh, player on the Rangers got checked about two years ago. Uh, Sauer, very promising defenseman. And uh, he was hit clean by a fellow on Toronto, Dean Phaneuf, and uh, Sauer hasn't played since. So uh, the, the the fighting part that you mentioned is sort of minimal. You don't see fights much in the playoffs. Very, very rare. People, the concentration is on winning a game. But we have in the regular season are these uh, designated fighters, and the league is working to get them out of the game because it's basically a, a sideshow that's unnecessary to sell hockey. Who, who encourages those designated fighters? Well, what happened was when the league expanded from 6 to 12 teams, the Philadelphia which, Flyers... Which was, which was, I'm sorry, which was in what year? 67, 68 was the first year of expansion. They went from 6 to 12, and from that point on, they incrementally expanded to now we have 30 teams. And because of the lack of quality players, some tough guys from the minors were added to the team, and the owner of the Philadelphia Flyers, Ed Snyder, decided that his team was being pushed around too much. So he loaded up with tough guys. They became the Broad Street Bullies. And in 1974, they were the first expansion team to win a Stanley Cup. And when a team wins a Stanley Cup, other teams mimic them. So eventually, in the evolution of the game, every team felt it had to have one or two enforcers. And when you have a couple of enforcers, they know they're making their bucks by fighting. So one guy would say, you want to go? And the other guy said, let's go. They drop their gloves and they fight basically for no reason at all. Was it almost like professional wrestling? I mean, were they just, you know, come on, it's our job. Let's fight. The difference is that these guys were fighting for real. This was not an act like uh, like in wrestling. But uh, that aspect of the game is now uh, uh, not as appealing as it used to be. However, one of the strategies that's used is for a player, if his team is losing, to start a fight to sort of rev up the team. 
Now, that happened in the the series I covered. I covered the Pittsburgh Islander series, and uh, uh, there was a fight that was started with the Islanders down two zip, and it rallied the team. They went on to win, and the players I interviewed after the game said if so-and-so didn't start that fight, and it was Kyle Oposo, who wasn't really a fighter, but he got uh, angry at somebody on the Penguins, and it was a pretty even fight. But the fact that this guy, Oposo, who really didn't fight very much, was sort of getting into it, it rallied the team, and they went on, they won. And you know what? The person who taught me something about hockey fighting was the guy who actually turned me on to you, a good friend of mine and yours, Brian McBride, who used to be director of new business development for the NHL. And he told me something that a lot of hockey, well, all hockey players know, the jerseys they wear are buttoned underneath the crotch. So you explain why. Well, the uh, in the old days of fighting, one of the techniques was for uh, one of the two combatants to lift the jersey over the other guy's head and then uh, you have a, an advantage. You can pummel him while he's fighting to get get the thing off or to get it over his neck again. So uh, that became an, an exaggerated part of the fighting, and the league decided to heck with this. And you know now they're basically nailed down. So uh, that's that that's part of the. Uh, Zany aspect of fighting. So, but buttoning that shirt underneath the crotch means you, you're not going to you're not going to be blinded by a shirt over your head right now. You you hope you wouldn't. Yeah. There are ways around that too. I have to come back to that thirty miles an hour because we were talking about how hard it is to see that puck with these guys skating so fast. And in the few games I've gone to, I mean, these are massive bodies out there moving so fast. Thirty miles an hour. You're trying to keep your eye on that puck. It makes me think of football when a, a receiver has to jump in the air and keep his eye on the ball, even though there's a huge defensive end ready to clobber him. But this is even at faster speed. Well, how do you keep the, your eye on the puck when when you know you could be clobbered like this? It's a trick. It's a trick that they uh, they they work on. You you have to actually. And I speak from experience having played the game. You have to be able to feel the puck. And remember, it's six ounces, six ounces of vulcanized rubber. So you can feel that thing on the stick. You have to feel it. And when these guys uh, start really getting serious about the game, like when they're 17, 18, uh, they're learning how to stick handle without looking. Uh, they, they, this is, this is almost a, uh, a survival mode. You know, you, you have to do this if you want to get and you want to play at the top level. You learn to do all these things. The most amazing thing about hockey, and you can tell this to your daughter, is that these guys are doing things with a lot of art artificial equipment. In other words, they're not on, they're not running around in sneakers like they do on a basketball court. They're wearing artificial shoes, skates, and they're skating on an artificial surface, the ice, and they're using an artificial arm, basically, which is the stick. And uh, the skill level that's required to blend all these together is astonishing. And I have to tell you something. One of the things that amazes me, and if you watch a game closely, is how some players can take a pass on their skates and then by just manipulating the skate, move it right onto their stick. 
And this, of course, is done at high speeds because the passes that are going from one end of the rink, say from uh, 50 feet uh, pass up from behind the net all the way up to the opposition blue line, that puck is moving very, very quickly. Maybe not as hard as a 100-mile shot, but they pass the puck almost as hard as they shoot it. Hmm. Well, you know what? I'm almost out of breath just listening to all these details, which leads me to a tweet of yours because you're on Twitter. And uh, to paraphrase it, it was basically the, 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 the winner or loser. What's going to determine the results of this particular Stanley Cup finals, which, by the way, is being played by two of the original franchises, right? Boston versus Chicago. That's correct. And you said in your tweet that it's going to depend who runs out of steam first. Which, am I paraphrasing correctly? Absolutely. Which, exactly. which, which really brings it back to a human level. These people are not gods. They're human beings. They might be the best conditioned human beings in the history of hockey. But at some point, you, you can run out of steam. Who's going to run out of steam first here? Chicago. Chicago uh, will run out of steam because as a group, they're smaller and they're less physically aggressive. Uh, the Bruins are called the Big Bad Bruins for a reason, and that is they have the biggest guy in the game. Uh, Zadino Charis stands 6'9 when he's wearing skates. He's 7 feet tall, and he's about 265 pounds. And uh, they have the biggest, most effective forward in uh, Milan Lucic. So when Lucic is not scoring goals, which he does pretty well, he pounds the opposition. And this constant pounding uh, will neutralize Chicago. Chicago's best players, uh, such as Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taze, are relatively light compared to the Bruins. And the pounding, to me, has a cumulative effect, and I see it happening now. If Chicago can get around this and uh, use its speed, uh, they might have a chance. But, uh, you know, you can't run and hide on a hockey rink. There really isn't a lot of room to maneuver, which is what makes makes it all the more dazzling, because they do seem to maneuver, and yet there's hardly any space. Well, that's changed. What happens in the hockey rink is that it's 200 feet long and 85 feet wide. And it was that way when the National Hockey League was invented in 1917. Now, at that time, the average player was 5'7", and 160 pounds. Today, the average player is 6'2 and way over 200 pounds, which means that the amount of space that's on a hockey rink now has diminished uh, tremendously. If you watch a video of a game, say, played in 1940, and you look at all the space that's available on the ice, compare it to today, it's much different. So there is less room to maneuver and more likelihood that there are going to be collisions because the rink size has not changed, hasn't adapted to the size of the players. There's a move afoot, a very serious move afoot, to at least widen the rink by a minimum of five feet to create more room. But uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of log jams on the ice. It's uh, it's uh, it's a it's an issue, no question you know, about it. That makes so much sense because coming back to that tennis analogy and the the interview I did with Nick Boletari, there's there's now uh, the United States Tennis Association uh, has new rules for the junior players. 
they they have smaller courts, smaller boundaries demarcated on the court with lower bouncing balls. Because the idea is, you know, why why have a an eight or nine year old play with a ball that bounces just as high as it does for a twenty year old and cover just as much ground? It makes no sense. This is like the flip side of that. These guys have become so big that why not expand the size of the ice? Is is there any debate over that? I mean, do people dis- dis- say that's a bad idea? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the major debate is uh, dollars. Uh, you widen the rink, you're removing uh, X number of seats. They are the most expensive seats in the house. And uh, I, I tell you, the owners have been uh, militant about uh, holding it at the the current size, but uh, I see guys coming out of junior hockey, guys who are going to make the move into the uh, into the NHL. I'm looking at guys bigger than I have ever dreamed would be. You know, I read about a kid who's really talented kid. He's about six four, two hundred and forty pounds. I mean, this is this is nutsy stuff. And uh, you know, you have. Uh, I mean, you have these uh, guys. I mean, it's it's almost as like you're having a bunch of Goodyear blimps on the rink with skates. It it's not good. It's not good. And uh, but I believe that this this starting to be enlightened about this. I talked to one of the executives of the Detroit Red Wings, and they're saying that uh, when they build the new rink in Detroit, which they're talking about, it will be a larger width, not the length, but the width. So we could start a little campaign here. I mean, this is something obviously that's not news to you, but it will be to most people. And when we watch that game, when you say five more feet, that seems like such a small amount. And so I'm trying to imagine watching this series with an extra five feet at the width. Would it really make a difference, a visible difference? It would. It would. It, it. It's not as much as it should be. You see the Olympic size rink and the size rink uh, that's used in the Continental Hockey League, which is the top league in Europe. They play on Olympic size rink. Uh, lots more room. Lots more creativity. So wait a but, second. So, so this is something I didn't know. So Olympic hockey plays on a bigger rink. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's significantly bigger. Now, now, and, so so let's get back to the money issue. So the owners are worried about taking out some of those prime seats, but what's the better game to watch? I would assume the better game is more white space, which which allows for more creativity and artistry. The argument against that is that the uh, big rink doesn't allow for enough physical contact, and there are too many uh, uh, what they would consider lulls. It would be like the difference between a pinball machine that has flippers, which would be the NHL, and doesn't have flippers when the ball just comes down right. and you don't get whacked around and you're not knocking things up and down. But uh, that's uh, they're, 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 the, the argument in favor of the current style rink is that it, 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 it can, enhances action of various kinds. But even adherence to that, one of them being Brian Burke, who was the GM of the Maple Leafs until recently, Burke had been militantly against the bigger rink, and now he's seeing the light and saying... The other way to do it, by the way, that's been advocated is having uh, four skaters in a goalie rather than five skaters, because 
Uh, hockey originally was a seven-man uh, game, and you had six skaters and a goalie. The sixth skater was then called a rover, and uh, the rover was eventually eliminated to what we have now, which is three forwards, two defensemen, and a goalie. But there is a move, or there's been some people like Kenny Dryden, who's a Hall of Fame goalie and pretty studious fellow, he thinks the answer is four on four. Well, already you've given us, our audience, so many perspective-changing facts and images. This is CNN Profiles. We're, we're speaking with Stan Fischler, one of the gurus of, of uh, the National Hockey League uh, for MSG Network. Uh, let's spend this last five minutes talking about this series. Now that we have a much broader perspective and much more insight, you, you, so you believe that Chicago is going to run out of steam first because Boston is just a bigger, more powerful team. It's almost like two boxers going at it and one guy taking a lot of blows to the midsection. Eventually, his arms come down. That's the way it sounds to me. No, Billy Kahn versus Joe Lewis, the first fight. Uh, 13 rounds, and Kahn uh, got a little bit uh, careless, and Joe had the big blow knocked him out. Now, the Blackhawks are not where they are now because they're not good. They are a terrific team. But there are nuances. If the Boston goaltender, Rask, is just a little bit better than Crawford, the Chicago goalie, then that could be part of the equation. If somehow the Blackhawks can make good on the power play, which they haven't done until uh, going into tonight's game— uh, that could be a difference. You know, we're not talking about these games so far where the Blackhawks have been blown out. But in the last game, they didn't get a single goal. And this is a team that was noted for its offense. However, you know, you go to another game and uh, the uh, Rask uh, may have a slump. Rask against the Rangers. He, uh, he blew a game. Uh, he, a guy was coming down on an innocent play and he actually fell down. He slipped. It was, it was almost as if he slipped on an invisible banana peel. The Rangers scored into the empty net and they went on to win the game. So, uh, as, uh, Amo Francis once uh, said, Ranger, uh, general manager, hockey is a slippery game. It's played on ice. And, I'm thinking that that intelligence clearly has something to do with it as as much as reaction time and reflexes and strength intelligence does. I was speaking to a former college World Series pitcher who enlightened me about baseball and how fascinating the time that everybody else thinks is the most boring time in a game, the time in between the two pitches, how many mental calculations are going on in that time, especially for the catcher. And this pitcher told me, you know, the catcher's got to be the smartest guy in that team. He sees everything and has to be on top of so many different permutations. Who is that guy in hockey? Well, the coach is the guy, and the coach relies on uh, a lot of video. They study the games inside, out, and sideways. And all it takes, really, is one uh, chess move, and that is removing a player who's not effective, putting somebody else on the line. Now, the hero so far for the Bruins is a guy who is relatively obscure, Dan Paillet. He scored the uh, last winning goal. And uh, he was moved on to what was considered the fourth line. 
And a fourth line, if you have a fourth line that gels the way the Bruins have, and it's better than the fourth line on the other team, that's a tremendous advantage because you have the top guys being nullifying each other. And if it comes down to the fourth line being the key line, that's how New Jersey beat the Rangers last year. They had a fourth line that worked, and the Rangers didn't. Give us, give but, us, give us that hockey one-on-one now because we see, again, the novice. We see sometimes... They call them shifts. The shifts change. Some, sometimes four guys will come onto the ice and four guys will come off the ice. So these guys aren't playing from the very beginning to the very end without break. But again, to use that baseball analogy, in between plays, there's a lot of thinking going on. So what you're telling me is the thinking can't go on by the players so much. They've got to be reacting. It's the coach who's doing the thinking. And that's why they have uh, sometimes two coaches in addition to the head coach behind the bench one is working with the defense one is working with the power play and of course the head coach is working overall and he has an he has two eyes up in the stand so he's also getting advice from one of his uh, guys upstairs and this, this is all done on the fly it's done as the game is going on uh, shift changes sometimes guys are not pulled off the ice if the action is sustained and some players stay on the ice too long. They get fatigued. Lots of goals are scored because players overstayed their time on the ice. That happens quite a bit. How much? How much time? Because you talked about a fourth line. So there, you know, I'm, you know, I don't know enough to know first line, second line, third. Tell us what the fourth line means, and tell us how long does a group of guys typically stay on the ice before they get a break, and then how much of a break they, do they get before they get back on the ice. Well, it could be 40 seconds or it could be a lot more because of a sustained attack. Nobody's going to jump out. And if you're trying to get a goal and you have a lot of good chances, nobody's going to be rushing to the bench. So it depends a, a lot on the action. But a 40-second shift is uh, certainly likely. Uh, uh, what, hap what happens with the fourth line is basically you have players who are not as skilled and they're checkers. Uh, they're basically there to keep the other team from scoring. However, within that line, you may have some talent, and that's what happened. That's what's going on with the Bruins. They have some talented guys on the fourth line. Some of the greatest heroes of hockey uh, in the 1942 Maple Leafs, they were down three games to nothing, and they won the last uh, four, and they won the Cup, the only team ever to come back in the final uh, that way. Their hero was a guy named Don Metz. Don Metz hardly ever uh, played a full season in the NHL, and yet he was on five Stanley Cup winners with Toronto because he did the right thing at the right time. So the fourth line, they, you don't see them on the ice until when? Oh, they'll, uh, they'll if, if, the, if the team, if the game is flowing well and the coach feels that he needs energy, that's the other part of the the fourth line is basically considered the energy line. They're there to rev up the rest of the guys, play hard, check, and if you get a scoring opportunity, good, cash in it. But they are the energy guys. They're the energizer bunny of any offense, and uh, it's a combination of speed and hitting. And, um, you know, icing on the cake will be getting a goal here and there. And this guy, Paye, has become very good at it for Boston. So how do my nine-year-old daughter and I recognize when the fourth line is coming out? Is there any way to know? Yeah, listen to the play-by-play -play guy. <laughs> He'll tell you all the time. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, just listen for Paye on Boston and you'll know. Okay. And so now this brings you 
you are, you are now writing a book. Is it, is it about to come out? No, I just did a book on the Bruins, 50 the, greatest moments and 50 greatest players. And uh, uh, right give, now, give a couple me one, of... Give me one great one and then one great one you think might be in the in the in the uh, uh, in the follow-up version in in the in the in the second printing based on what you're seeing in this series. But first, give me one of those great moments and great players, and what made that player great and what made that moment great. Well, uh, one of my favorites is a guy who got a nickname called uh, Sudden Death. His name was Mel Hill, and he basically was one of these. Uh, uh, third or fourth liners in in a series against the Rangers when they won the cup in 39 he scored three sudden death goals including the sudden death winner in game seven to win the cup for the Bruins and uh, right now they have a, a fellow named Patrice Bergeron who just wins face-off after face-off after face-off he's he's smart he never has a bad shift and he's going to be in the next book you said he's smart what what makes him how do you how do you recognize a smart player well uh, first of all winning face face-offs uh winning face-off is a, is an art and this guy wins more than 70 percent uh in 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 most games so that's number one what's the number what's the art just tell us what is the art because we, we're going to see a lot of face-offs what is the art of winning a face-off well you got to watch closely to see just before the linesman drops the puck how he manipulates his stick to get the puck back to his guy rather than losing it to the other guy bringing it back to your guy the second part of this guy's skill and creativity is how his passes are unerringly accurate at high speed. And guess what? He scores big goals. He's got a great shot. He does everything well, and he's in the right place at the right time. In other words, he knows where the puck is going more than other guys, and he gets there before the other guys do. And in That's terms a terrific... In terms of knowing where the puck is going, because like I understand basketball and they've got a lot of preset plays, a lot of there's certain rhythms in basketball that you just pick up. Are there those same rhythms in hockey or is it a little more chaotic and you need an extra sense to know where the puck is going? You need the extra sense and it is more chaotic because of the number of players, more players. And because it's sort of uh, a little bit more crude than it is with basketball, because you've got the ice and you've got the small puck. But the uh, the sense that this fellow Bergeron has is what's known as hockey smarts, hockey sense. He he can anticipate correctly uh, with a higher average than the average player. Okay, so we're going to study his brain. Maybe we'll get him on after the series. Uh, we'll put him through the scanner. We'll see what 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 what's up with him. Uh, now now let me ask you one f one final question about hockey, and then one final question about you. Uh, Everybody, you know, we see these checks. We see how violent they can seem sometimes. And part of that is not necessarily because you're, you're determined to hurt the guy. But as you explained to us, two guys going at 30 miles an hour, you have a collision. It's going to hurt. It's going to be big. But how can we recognize the difference between a legitimate check and a penalty? Well, a lot of it is uh, a nuance. Uh, the elbow plays a big part in it. And so does the stick. There are, there are devious ways of hurting players. One of them is a butt end where you spear the guy in the stomach. It's, uh, you can get away with that if you know how to do it. The butt end is by slipping 
your uh, hand at the t from the top of the stick down the stick and then jabbing the guy with the uh, the butt end of the stick uh, that happens a lot which excuse which excuse me gets gets to the the difficult job of a referee here because they're skating as fast <laughs> and making as many turns as the players you know that they're on to the butt end. They know what the butt end is, but I guess you just can't see it all the time. No, they uh, they miss a lot, and that's that's part of the excitement of the game. That's what leads to fights. If a guy is is egregiously fouled and the referee doesn't call a penalty, well, you know damn well that he's going to get even at some point or other in the game, or if not in that game, he'll be waiting for the opportunity somewhere down the line but uh, it's very difficult to officiate because the referees not only have to be watching but they have to get out of the way they have to be there are four guys you got two refs two linesmen they got to be getting out of the way of these guys all the time the pucks along the boards the referees along the boards he has to leap up off uh, to get out of the way so it's uh, a lot of fouls are just not called because of the speed wow all right. So now the, the final question or two about you. In addition to 90 books about hockey, you are obsessed with the New York subway system. How many books have you written on the New York subway system? I've written five, but, five you know, books. It occurred to it. me. It occurred to me. You write as fast as these skaters skate. <laughs> well, I, lo I I grew up in the house in Brooklyn uh, when I was three years old, I walked out of the house with my mother, and there were about a dozen guys digging up Marcy Avenue. I said, Mom, what's going on here? She says, they're building a subway. And the subway was built directly in front of my house. The Myrtle Willoughby Station was underneath the house. It's on the uh, IND. It's the Brooklyn, Queens, Crosstown line. So I, I grew up. We never had a car. So what we did was travel by subway to get wherever we wanted to go. So when I wanted to go to a hockey game, I'd go downstairs to the station right underneath our house and take the subway up to the garden. And that's uh, and I just got to love uh, trains, always love trains. So Stan, I have, so I have to tell you, as we finish this, you speak with so much passion, with so much energy. Uh, clearly, you're like a walking encyclopedia here, but, but, but your mind... Does your mind feel as quick as it ever has at age 81? Because I can't imagine a quicker mind. It does. But I have to tell you, you brought out the best in me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thrilled You're my everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thrilled to hear that. Listen, is it too late for me to get on skates? I'm 53. Never too late. Never too late. Just have a good instructor and make sure you have a good pair of skates. Good. Well, listen, you're, you're, you're biking back to your office? Of course. Safe, safe travels. Thanks, St pal. Stan Fischler, MSG Network, Hockey Maven, Subway Maven, 81-year-old bicyclist. Uh, we're going we're gonna to see the rest of the series the way we've never seen it before. Thank you so much for joining us on CNN Profiles. Really my pleasure.